What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. The role that our family and sibling dynamics play in who we become as adults is undeniable. So what happens to a person when a much-loved and idolised brother dies, especially when that sibling was a best friend, parent figure, business partner, footy star, reality TV legend and a hero? In this episode of Human Cogs, award-winning documentary maker Pete Dixon shares the story of growing up as one of six close-knit kids and the special bond that he shared with his brother Rob, who died along with his two young sons in a shocking car accident in 2009. It is a story of grief and love, but perhaps more than that, it's Pete's story of exploring how to honour Rob's legacy while searching for ways to make sense of his own shifting identity as a father, brother, partner and filmmaker in a world where his brother is no longer by his side. Here's our conversation with Pete. Pete, thanks for joining us on Human Cogs. You're a documentary maker mm-hmm. and a storyteller. So let's start with your story. Tell us about what it was like growing up as the fifth child of six children. I look back on my childhood and I think I had a great childhood, but then at times it was pretty tumultuous. It was it was a rough... My parents had a volatile relationship. I'm not saying any other school because I've written it in the book and Dad's read it. My mum's no longer here, but... Yeah, I, I, so I was the fifth child of a, a large family. There was one girl, Sue, was my elder sister, was born first, and then there was five boys. When I was born, my mum thought that I needed a sort of a, a – that she had to have another one to have someone because there was a five-year gap between myself and Rob, who was our fourth child. So then they had another child. So we were six, and there was another boy. Yeah, I remember my early memory. My early memories were in Heathmont, which is an outer suburb of Melbourne. And my earliest memories, because when I wrote the book, I had to really dig deep into, and my memory's not great. But I remember being loved. I remember having so much sibling love and care from my siblings and my mum, who was a very religious, loving, warm woman. Dad was. Not, I can't remember him being warm. I can't remember, but he, but he was a provider. He was one. It was those years where the, the man would go out, and he was a gun sportsman, played for Australia in baseball, and so he had his sort of life. And there was always an odd connection. I, I, I sort of thought between those two because you had your fiercely religious woman, your fiercely male, alpha male, sporting gun. How did they meet your parents? Oh, I think they met at a dance or something like that. You know, those years, the years <laughs> that was a dance. Day, yeah. But um, so we had. I grew up, and I was a really. I was. I, I didn't. No one knew, but I was really sick as a kid. I was born with. I had this massive stomach, and but everything else was fine. And just look, I had a bowling ball in my stomach growing up, and you know, I can't really remember it. Only photos jog my memory, but 
my older brothers and sister kept saying that I it was strange because I was a really happy kid and and always laughing and Rob and my brothers and would get me going and um and then I was a bedwetter of the highest order like and no one could work it out and and so I was just wetting with the bed all the time and went to a school camp and I remember I didn't want to wet the bed at the school camp because I was in a room with you know other boys and it was grade six and I held on, didn't, and I wake up the next day and, well, I didn't really sleep. I just held on all night. And then I had a episode where everything went haywire. So the pain through my back and front, and I still remember the pain. So they took me to hospital and I found out that I had a, I had a really enlarged right kidney. So when I'd go to the toilet, I was having reflux. So I'd only released maybe 60% since birth. So... Mm. The rest was going back into the kidney and infecting it. So that was huge. So that was the, that was the reason for my stomach was so big. <laughs> so I had 40, 40% function in, in that kidney. And then I subsequently found out my left kidney was twisted and I was only operating on 35% function. So between them, I had one kidney. So they had to decide what to do and they didn't want to put me on dialysis. And they decided to try um in simple terms a tube between my bladder and my kidney and they were sort of hopeful that it'd work and it did and so i've still got it and it stopped the reflux and so i've still got the same function in my kidneys and yet you had a deep passion for footy and it was the kidney complications that kind of put an end to that dream yeah and that that's been a lifelong um regret of mine that footy is i hate talking about this because it feels like you're talking up yourself but I, I was actually a really good football player and and so i was getting selected in all the teams and then hawthorne asked me down to train so this is post-operation obviously so i went back to play and dad unbeknownst to me dad had decided he'll let me play until the seniors came around I just thought I was normal, as you do at that age. You just think you're normal. Like, I was feeling good. Um, I had a big scar on my tummy, but it didn't stop me athletically. So but I um, so I got to the point where it, there was a decision to be made and Dad just put his foot down. I was about 16 and said, you're, you're finishing. And, you know, I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you, you're not playing anymore because the bigger bodies, they were starting to put me into the under-19s and stuff. And I, I, I would get completely... The problem was back in those days, if you're a good player, you just get hounded. Like, so I was getting smashed off the ball all the time. And um, I never thought anything, but Dad was saying that if the kidney was, tube was dislodged, I would be on dialysis, which was real. There was no, you know, there was, a, there was options of having a kidney replacement from one of my brothers. Don had the same, could, could have done it, but they just didn't want that. So I had to stop playing. And then Rob went on to play for Hawthorne. Mm. <laughs> it's it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the cost to you if you had have played and, and with yeah high impact. I mean, I, you can see why yeah. I suppose weighing that up that your parents were trying to save mm. your life. Yeah, but yeah, it's a huge thing to to swallow that ambition that you had and all that talent. Well, it broke me back then because I all I could see was that I was going to be playing in the AFL. So it's like a kid these days who's 16, 17 and they're drafting them and they're, they're in the system. That was me back in those days. So I just thought, well, that's where I'm going and, and I loved it. I loved it so much. So I think that was a point where I, I hated Dad 
more than anything. And I think I think at that point, I just I, I, I think I said it in the book. I think it was my first depression that I suffered in my life because I was not in a good place. And you know, my family helped me get through it and all that sort of stuff. And I sort of focused then on what am I going to do now? And because sport was sort of all encompassing in our family, so everyone was into sport and and. It was, it was almost our release from the religion that was in the house as well. Your mother's very religious. Your yeah. dad's very sporty. Your grandfather played AFL. Your father played baseball. Your uncle played AFL. And then your brother Rob was drafted for Hawthorne. Mm. So your sense of identity must have shifted when you were told this dream is no longer yours. It's a great term. That was my identity, yeah. I, I had to be a sportsman of note. That's what I thought as growing up. I thought that'll there was a family tree of success in sport. So my and my older brother Don, my second elder brother Don was a professional golfer. So yeah, I think that was when I first really suffered a form of depression. You don't know it at sixteen, seventeen, but it's sort of and it changed the trajectory of my being a little bit. Um, I became a bit more resentful of things and what am I going to do now and Back in those days, I was playing cricket in between footy and and so forth, and I was a, a good cricketer. But and I knew that I could play really good levels of cricket, but I knew that I couldn't make it to the elite level of cricket, where I knew I could make it to the elite level of football. So I sort of threw everything into cricket, thinking, "Oh, this will be what I'll do." So I was living with Rob, who was now Rob was drafted at Hawthorne. So that that was another moment in my life where he came after my offer. So uh, that that made me resentful, I think, in a way, but also loved it for him. It was a mix of um, like a bit bittersweet. It sounds oh, like really that. bittersweet, yeah. yeah. And I was and I moved out of home pretty early, seventeen, eighteen, to get away from mum. Really, <laughs> can, can we talk about your mum a bit? I think it's really interesting. Um, you're saying you know, sport was a release from religion. It sounds like religion was. Huge. Was it Catholicism or what was the religion that was in that that she practiced? Oh, we were we were Methodists. Methodists. Okay. But Mum was verging on Pentecostal kind of. You know, she was really. What does that mean? Ah, uh, speaking in tongues, full on. You know, you can't have a drink. You, you don't swear. It was really the extreme of Christianity. And to an example was one of many. But I was about 16 or 17 and I was having a beer at a school function. It was a year 11, I think, celebration or something, which was normal. You sort of have a beer or whatever as a sort of age. And mum came into the venue we were and saw me having a beer and was completely horrified and dragged me home and spent two hours reading from the Bible to me while I was in bed. That was the sort of mm. – she was trying to purge the – Purge the beer. The beer, the drink, purge that sort wow. of lifestyle. And so, and kept a really close eye. So she was full on, and that was after they divorced. So she was really leaning on myself and my little brother, Ricky, who were left at home emotionally, which we weren't equipped to deal with that. Um, all, the, all my older siblings had left. So I loved my mum. Like she was so caring and warm and taught us so many things. But that was the element that when it got that, Restrictive. We just wanted to leave the nest, you know. Which I would want my kids to want to stay in the nest, you know, for as long as they wanted to. But yeah, we were first time we could get out, we get out. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't suggest a great. 
Well, it sounds like you just had lost your anchor. You'd lost the the parental, the family structure had shifted because your older siblings had flown the coop. Mm. Your parents had separated and your mum was um, very resentful and distressed around your dad's leaving. You thought you were going to have a career in football. You watched your brother follow that and you couldn't follow suit for medical reasons. So I can just hear you saying, I was out to sea. I was. I completely lost the anchor. And I, and I lost, and I was a really good student, mm-hmm. and I was rebelling against the world, and I just dropped all that. I remember going through a year period. This is like the, the really important years of school, year 10, 11. And I was vice captain of the school, year 10. And then I just turned into this, I'm not studying, I'm not doing, I'm, I'm not focusing on that. Uh, and, I, and I became a shit, like, really. Like, I, I, you know, I, I still would treat people fine, but I just, I just didn't know what I was going to do mm. with my life. And thankfully, the, and the National Safety Council, which Rob and I both worked for up in Gippsland, sort of gave me some focus, but it still was not what I wanted to do. Mm. So I, I sort of fell into this job as many kids do. It sounded kind of like a Band-Aid in those years. It was. It was an offering to stop the bleeding, but yeah. it wasn't going to heal no. what the wound that you were, I used were to, I used to hate the job. Like, I used mm. to hate it. I'd go there and I'd, I'd think, is this what everyone does? Like, you spend eight hours at this place, you know, and it's sort of, it's a great company to work for, but because I didn't know what I wanted to do in life and because everything was driven towards the footy, mm. I was just – and so I, I feel for players now who get out of the system and they don't know what the hell they're going to do with their life. Mm. Um, well, well, especially as you've talked about, that when it's so coupled with your identity mm. that you're not distinct from that thing, you know, as a person, um, that, that's a huge thing to grapple with. So tumultuous, torrid, the, there's a lot um, just in this, this quick uh, conversation about your – your early years and then you coming to um, to terms with your own um, loss of, of path of what you thought you were going to do. And you've recently released a book where you detail more loss that unfortunately, you know, compounded in your life um, after your early years. And I wanted to just read a quick bit of the back cover where you write, one phone call, one sudden unexpected tragic event in a distant land. That is all it took to shatter one man's world and his close-knit family into a thousand pieces. If you don't mind, we'd love to talk um, about the story of your brother, Rob, uh, and much of what you cover in this incredible book. Tell us about Rob and your relationship with him, particularly growing up. You're in a big family. Tell us about Rob and and yourself. Yeah. So, Rob, I mean, I love all my brothers and my sister to death, but Rob was the one who I was closest to and he was closest to. For some reason, it was a five-year gap, but it never felt like that. It was... So initially, it was very much a protector, older brother syndrome. But our sense of humour was always right on in sync. And so early on, I think he told me many times that early on, even when I was a toddler and stuff, he started to realise that we had a very similar sense of humour. So that carried us through. And then we he he left to play footy, and and I was. I missed him terribly because just at home he was that presence to me that um, everything was all right in the world with Rob there. Rob was fiercely religious himself. He was a missionary. He, he did so many things that I've put in the book that people weren't aware of, but he was probably mum's golden child. <laughs> so he was the, I called it the great white hope. It was him and Sue who were both, and Sue was still very religious, but they, they were the Christian hope for mum. The rest of us seemed to go by the wayside, but... 
Rob was very much that guiding figure. To me, he was my hero. He never drank, never smoked, but he could still be – he had this charisma that was – and. You know, overbearing. I remember one of Craig Hubbard, one of his friends, said it was annoyingly. He was annoyingly charismatic, <laughs> and he had the looks. And he was he was one of those really annoyingly perfect sort of guys in a lot of areas. He had a massive amount of faults, but generally people loved him and were drawn to him. I just had this. He was like a father, a brother, best friend to me, and we did everything together. And We'd speak four times a day on the phone. It was, it was that really, really intense relationship for years. So if something was funny, I'd ring straight away. He'd go, yeah, I've, I've just watched that or something. It was the same. We had the same sort of wavelength. And then we became work partners as well. In the doc- he, was, he grew up with a Super 8 camera. He was a, a filmmaker from very early on. And I, I always lived under that shadow. I, I loved what he was doing, but because he was doing it, I didn't dare venture into his area i just sort of supported him and loved watch what he what, what he did so when we got a little bit of fortune a bit of luck in terms of finances that's um, a that's a tats lotto that's a tats lotto story actually one a tats, tats you, yeah one tats yeah one tats um you won tats <laughs> can you is it just ask how much we won a million there was a big yeah. influx of money I went into business with Rob. We decided to start, and basically, I went into support. He was finished in the A playing, but he was still involved in the AFL system. And he had all these great ideas for doing documentaries in the AFL space. And he was one of the one of Andrew Demetrio's best friends at the time. So Andrew was head of the AFL. So there was all these roads led to this that we could get in to the system, and no one else was really doing what we did. So I took a punt and invested in me and Rob and we were away and then that's how it all started. So Rob had done a few little documentaries before it. He just didn't have the support network around him um, that he needed because we're both horrendous business operators. um, So we needed that structure around us and this enabled us to start getting that. And and he was in Queensland at the time, moved to Melbourne with, with his wife. And so you're looking at a guy who, when I reflect on it, was... My best friend, my brother, my dad, and my work partner. Mm. Wow. So when he had an accident in South Africa, um, I just felt like I'd lost my world, really. Do you mind talking about what, what happened? So, so he went on a family holiday. He just finished his masterpiece, big essence of the game documentary for the AFL. I was actually staying at Rob's house. It was Easter 2009. And I was staying at his house because we were living at Point Lonsdale at the time. And I said to him before he left, I said, oh, we're going to start your time at Easter. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. And it's always open because he never locked doors and stuff. And anyway, he gave me a key. And we, we were staying there and then I got a call on the Saturday of Easter and it was Dad who just said, um, Pete, Rob's dead. And I was like, you know, so what? Like, I, I just... Like, and it was so blunt. And it was funny because I wrote about this. I just thought how blunt is dad. I didn't think about Rob's dad. It was just this weird. And I, and I look at it now and I, with help that I've had in speaking to people, it was a really, it was a defensive mechanism, I think, to, to, to switch the subject. And, and he said, I'll call you back and I hung up. And I was sitting there and I had two toddlers, girls, and Ness was off on a ride. And yeah, so he had an accident in near Sun City in South Africa. Um, uh, yeah, it was a, a bit of a debacle, the, the, the scene and so forth. And 
So Dusty was thrown out of the car. The, there was three kids in the back. Um, one of their cousins was there as well, and he survived. So the kid in the middle and Gabriel and Byron were on either side. Um, Byron and Rob died at the scene. Gabriel was chopped to Pretoria and was on life support, but he had. I mean, I mean, I think about it now. He he looked fine, like he was perfectly fine, but. The damage internally was too much, and once the machines was yeah he would, yeah, so that, how old were the boys at the time? Five and eight. Hmm. So yeah, we so I immediately I went to South Africa with Dad and my, one of my older brother Don, and we yeah it was horrendous. Couple of weeks we had to sort everything out, and um, it was surreal. Yeah. Hmm. Do. You, like when you think about it now with the distance of the years, how many years are we, what, 13 years or so? Yeah. What was the major or the dominant um, emotion when you think about, you know, surreal or, or, you know, how did it feel that period when you when you look back on it now? Is there a word or a sentiment that really lays over it? No, it was just overwhelmingly, it was just traumatic. It was, it was such a traumatic, um, I mean, the sadness and the, the grief didn't hit me in those first in that first period. It was I just didn't know how to register it all. I, 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 I and I'm an emotional guy, so I I was just crying the whole time. So we were on the plane over there, and the AFL were of enormous support to us, and we we had all that sorted for us. And we I was just in shock. I think I was in shock for a long while. I think I. I I tried to put on a – I was the so, – so dad – and, I mean, I think about dad and he, he lost his son, you know, and I, and I – so there was a part of me that was trying to push away what I was feeling because I thought other people are doing it harder than me. Mm. And, I, and the other thing was Dusty – his wife survived. So I thought, how can I possibly be anything here because there's far more people being impacted than me here. Um so I was I was using that a lot as a I can't be I'll, I'll be all right. They're they're worse off than me, um, which I don't. That's not healthy. We we call it um, comparative suffering. Ah, there's a name for everything, isn't there? And when we compare to others, it negates our own experience mm. because you're not dusty. You didn't lose your husband. You didn't lose your child. So your pain doesn't matter. Yeah. It's exactly what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, 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 I parked my own, which I only found out years later, that I um, – so I was the one over there. I was the emotional one. So – and I had the connection to her wider family who were over there in South Africa um, because I was the one who was closest to Rob, so I spent a lot more time with them. And – yeah, I was just – I was trying to give Dusty support, but Dusty was in – she was almost in another planet. Like, her, she was just in so much shock and, you know, so she was just like a zombie. Um, and I sat with Gabriel for a week. That's all I did, really. I just sat in the hospital with him. Um, and Dad was organising all the all the stuff that has to happen when you have a loss in another country. He was dealing with um, – the Australian Commission and everybody, and he, he he sort of put himself into that mode because that's what he was. He was an organizer, so he did all that. And Don was sort of um, trying to manage both dad and me because I was 
the emotional one down with. So it was a really traumatic time when I look back at it. And then, yeah, we had a little funeral over there and I, yeah, I, I can't even look at that vision. There was some, someone took vision of that and it's just, yeah, it was just traumatic. And then came home and was hit straight away with the press. Like I, over, Rob was a bit, uh, um, well, it wasn't a big name in the AFL world, but he was really well liked and regarded. And with the films, he just had this. He was almost, a, and he won had one survivor, Australian survivor as well. So he had this um, media profile. Profile, mm-hmm. and it was before the days of all the social media and stuff as well. So when we got back, I was I was hit with all this. You've got to front the press and talk about it all, and. And I'd been used to it a little bit because we'd done a few docos together and I said, and I was a little bit used to it, but I, he was always the front man and all of a sudden I was thrust into this, you're now the spokesperson and um, for the family and I was like, it was just new territory for me. So it was, again, I, I you know, I was pushing everything aside to be this person I wasn't really. It's, it's a complex thing that, isn't it? Do you think the public had a right to know? I mean, you think about how raw and, and traumatised you were at that time. Do you think yeah, I, you should have had to front up publicly to speak about something so enormous? Well, the AFL um, and a wonderful guy, Brian Walsh, who was working at the AFL at the time, controlled it all for us and he was they were absolutely brilliant. But there was so much... I can understand in years to come when I was around the AFL a lot more, there was so much questions and media driven to the AFL about this whole thing that happened, so they had to deal with it somehow. And if we didn't want to do it, they would have forced us, I'm sure of it, but we just didn't want another narrative out there that, Mm. you know, and the other thing I wanted to do or the family wanted to do was protect Dusty. I almost took it on. We took it on as a fact of let us deal with it, let her, you know, protect Dusty and her family. So that was probably how it was. But... Yeah, it was fascinating because that day when we, we flew back in, we did the press conference at the airport and then well, I remember going out to dinner and, and I was and I, we were unaware of the impact it was having here because I didn't, didn't look at anything from back home. But apparently the papers were running it full on. It was all this stuff going on. And, and then we got back and then so we're sitting having a, a pizza. I remember looking at there was a TV in the restaurant. It was a 6 p.m. and I was and Don and I were there with our wives and and you couldn't hear the TV, but you could see it where I was sitting and I was having a pizza thing. Oh, it's good. Now it's back. And I was sort of thinking, oh, it's over now. Like, oh, God, I can now focus on what we're... And I look up and there's us front. It's the first item on the Channel 9 News. I'm thinking, geez, what? Because I, I, I was surprised it was that important for a, a, a news bulletin. Um, I thought it might be in the sport somewhere or something. And then, so then I realised, oh, this is, this, is, this is bigger than I thought. And it did. It turned in. The next month was crazy because we had a memorial you know, nearly a thousand people in some. You know, it was just it was just incredible. St. Michael, sorry. Um, so yeah, I, again, I stalled everything for my own just to try to get through all that, and um, I sort of organised that with the AFL myself, the memorial, and again, it was like I'm just going to push all of my thoughts away. And hmm. yeah, and you make reference in the book to suppressed grief and demons. Hmm. What does that look like well, now? I, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. I, I mean, I had a breakdown um, in 2017. So I was doing probably the biggest documentary of my personal life. The it was a big Ashes cricket documentary, and I had to go to England. and And I, I came back, and 
my mum died. So it was almost like this perfect storm of everything sort of happened. So I came back from England and I was not in great shape anyway because I was working myself too hard and I was really battling to sleep. Then mum died a week later, so I had to help with that funeral. I did the um, eulogy and and it all came to a head and I was under real under real pressure to get this documentary released on Channel 9 and, um, yeah, I woke up about 2am, I still remember, and I, my whole body was convulsing. I was, I was almost like I was levitating on the... I, I was in full uncontrollable shakes and I thought I was having a heart attack. I couldn't, and I, I started hyperventilating because I was panicking. <laughs> so I and Ness was sleeping in another room, just on call um, as a doctor, and I could hardly get out of bed. and And I thought, I'm dying. I'm this is it. And um, I, I thought, what am I going to die? I, I couldn't speak either, so I couldn't yell or anything. And she would have been in a sleep too. home. so I somehow managed to crash into her room, and she, you know understandably was in shock and what's going on here and I I just fell over and she just held me to try to calm me down and that took a few hours and then so the next morning I was straight away in an emergency in a GP our GP and yeah they I, I they nervous breakdown was the diagnosis and then I found myself on a psychologist's couch and I had all this medication that they gave me to try to so they, they thought I was lucky that I didn't have anything worse. So that was the full extent of the, like, that's how it manifested. I was just in. Um, and then I started probably, that was probably the moment I started healing, I think, from the, because uh, I hadn't really. And so the, what the psychologist had, psychiatrist, sorry, had sort of ascertained early on was I hadn't really dealt with the grief lurking. So. Uh, the suppressed grief comment came up and then um, I just broke like, I, I, I just broke. It's, it, when he started to delve deeper into it with me, I, I broke. I, I was just a mess. And um, then I realised myself that I was in a bit of trouble because I thought I was stoic and okay and dealing with everything. But I threw myself into this manic work mode to keep Rob's legacy alive of documentary making and... And that was my life. So um, we talk about being, you know, how you you, um, you look at yourself as someone, and that's your life, and that's what you do. And I and I so I, I just turned everything into I'll do what Rob, you know, did, and I'll be that person, and I'll replace him in that sense, and keep his memory alive. And I I try to still do that today. It's it's I shouldn't, but yeah, I I, I and I think a part of the book is part of that as well. Yeah. But um, the should or shouldn't's not not helpful. It makes sense that you want to remember Rob and you want everyone else to remember Rob. And you can do that in ways, saying his name and sharing his stories. But is it too much? What do you think? I think so. I, I, I think I've got to a point where, you know, maybe people are just sick of it. Do you know? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, well, and, and that's maybe just me thinking that way, but... Is there something about letting him go? I mean, and I'm, I'm just... It's a wondering I've got really or just about when we lose someone who we love too soon, that there's a balance between keeping them alive in your life, in your heart, in your memories, and then actually letting them go as well so that you're not then forever bound 
to that legacy, that commitment. I don't, I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's a- yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to let him go. Mm. And I think that yeah, I think you're right. I, um, don't want to let him go at all. Like he's, he's don't want to cry here, but um, yeah. You don't want to let him go. No, he's part of yeah, you, you who you are. Well, I mean, I think I wrote it. He's he, he's just had a monumental impact on who I am, um, and I, I feel if I let him go, I, I'm not sure that um, the elements of Rob in me. Uh, I think I, I don't think I'd be the same person without that, and and I, don't, I wouldn't like to see that person. You know, I, I just don't think that's. Um, healthy for me because I, I try to utilise a lot of what he gave me all the time. Um, you know, he, he was so um, so influential in everything, like it's my work and, you know, how I treat my kids and I watched him as a dad and his humour and how he treated his friends. And so I, I'm constantly, and I, and I think I do this too much, I'm constantly comparing myself to that. And, yeah, I, the comparing against has been a real issue for me. But I still do it. I know I still do it. And I'm on a lot healthier space, but often I'll go, what would Rob do in this? Or how would he feel? Or what would he say? Or And, and I, you just can't do that. Because what happens to Pete when you do that? Oh, I, 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 I don't like myself. I, 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 I think I'm unworthy of, yeah. You lose yourself. Yeah. I'm, mm. I suffer with self-doubt. Always have, and, and it's because I'm, I think, comparing to a high watermark. You say in the book um, you experience a lifelong chase to be his mm. equal mm. instead of exploring your own pathway while respecting, celebrating, learning from Rob. Mm. You're not Rob. Mm. You're Pete. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's madness. I'm aware of it now. I was never aware of it. I, I really am aware of it. And I didn't even consider this through those years after he died. But I see it all the time. And I'm so I think I'm in a healthier space because I'm fully aware of it. And I, I try not to. But And, and I've just got to be happy with me. And I, I think I'm getting to a place where I am. And I think I'm getting to a place where I'm my whole identity was based around you're Rob's brother, you're continuing his legacy, that's you. And that's not me. <laughs> you know, because when I look, when, and I, I've spoken to a number of people lately for, for about the book and um, what, what came out of it is what you've done since Rob's died is not Rob, it's you. And, and, you know, so I always fell back on Rob taught me this, this, he would, this is how he would do it, but it's not a, anything like that. I mean, mm. I've got my own trail now that um and it's your story and i need to celebrate that a little bit i think um you say at the end of your book pete to your children you say you should be very proud in the knowledge that rob dixon was your uncle and what came up for me so loudly i'm going to cry now too, when i read that for you as i wanted you to be able to say to your children you should be very proud of me as your dad. Yeah. Well, I think they are. But, again, yeah, I don't know. I, there was a, there was a, a series, because I talk about him all the time, and they, they didn't you – know, it's so sad that they didn't get to have their uncle in their life and their cousins. Um, but he 
he was in Survivor, Australian Survivor, and and, and that was all captured from Channel Nine. So we had the whole series, and I showed them. I think last year or during COVID. For the first time, we sat down, and three of them who are now older watched it, and they were just spellbound by every minute of it. And and I think that was the moment they realised my, you know, my obsession and love for their uncle because he every all these mannerisms, and they kept saying it's the same as you. It's just like it was just like the same, the same voice. And um, but they really got to know him. I'm so thankful to that series because Rob was always behind the camera. He wasn't. He wasn't the one in front so this was a real chance to and there's no better crap reality tv series than survivor to understand what a person's <laughs> like because you get the real and 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 he was magnificent and, and he won it and so that was that was a beauty but yeah i understand that last line and i knew that would come up Dana. i knew that i knew that would some people would and my wife's also discussed that as well but it was important for me to say that because I, I do want them to... They can be both. They can be proud that yeah. Rob's their uncle and proud that Pate's their dad. I think, I think they are. I, and I think this, this book was... I mean, you, my two daughters were beside themselves with pride, you know, and, and so they're at an age now where they appreciate it and, um, yeah. I mean, Ness... I still remember Ness finished the book and, you know, she is such a support, Ness, but she was, she's always been of the, of the view that I'm my own person and, you know, you should be very proud of what you're doing and not, you're not Rob. And, um, and she knew Rob more than anyone because obviously we were together and she knew all these foibles and all these, you know, all these issues. But she said to me, oh, it's just sad that, you know, I'm still, we're still not enough. Like that was one of her words, and that really hit me hard. That we're not enough for you. Yeah, that was what she sort of took out of the book, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, reassure that that's not true. But I mean, if if she's seeing that, there must be an element of that. That's a mirror. It sounds like that you're not good enough for you. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Because I don't think you wouldn't say that about your family, but you might say it about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've really ever felt good enough yeah mm. i mean that's just me, who i am i think i'm always striving to to be a better version of um yeah maybe. and i don't know whether that's born from i mean this book has been a really cathartic experience for me going delving into my own being to be honest and i i look back and think you know i was sick as a kid and i always seemed to be up against it and then i had these things happen to me with footy and various things and then the breakup and my age at the time and I'm, I'm thinking I was I've always just been you know battling <laughs> so when I have success I don't like to accept it in a sense because I'm I just feel like I'm battling a lot of the time and and especially since Rob gone because I mean I, I, I never felt like that with Rob like Rob was always I always knew I had this backup emotionally and um, creatively, that I felt safe in 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 who I was with Rob, and yeah, I think when you lose that, you don't have that backup, and I and I, and I didn't have it from my mum or dad, you know, and I and to a degree I had it from my other siblings, but not nowhere near, you know, Rob. So yeah, it's a story of grief, but it's a story of love. 
And they're two sides, aren't they, of mm. the same. We we hurt deeply, we grieve deeply because we've loved deeply. And it's your story. Yeah, Gil Gillan was fantastic and, and he's he, he knows me more than anyone because we were actually back in the Robin Hamish and Gil and I were inseparable for a period where when we started the documentary making they were both come over from South Australia and so he he understands full well and I remember he said to me at the launch you know he just he was so proud that of me doing it because he just thought it was the most important thing for me to do and I actually saw him last weekend we're at a, a function and you know he gave me a hug and he and I could just he's oh, there's a lot of negativity toward Gill and the AFL and, you know, those sort of people. But he, oh, he's so – I know him deeply and he's so warm and loving and he just – all he does is care, you know, for people and he feels like I've purged something with the book and, yeah, so he, he understood it deeply and it allowed me to bag him throughout it, which you probably realised when you read it. <laughs> it is a bit of a who's who in the yeah, footy world. Yeah. There's a lot of names in there that people would know, 80s, 90s, footy stars. But just on the on, on that, I, I did try to – it is a story of grief and it's a, probably a story of mental health more than anything, but um, I also wanted to, to balance it with light and laugh and fun. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping anyone who's listening doesn't think it's just sad. <laughs> and you did. Well, and up, you it did. It is uplifting. Like, yeah. you know, um, it, it is a, it's your story. Yeah. It's through your lens. Yeah. And, um, he, and he, I mean, his life was remarkable. Like, it was remarkable. And and yours is too. Yeah. Is it is it finished? Have you have you written the story? Did it feel like it like did. there's catharsis in it? it did. Does it feel like enough? Or are you like now there's a whole other book now I need to go and write? Um, I, I, I it's interesting because I really enjoyed the writing process, and I'm as a filmmaker, you structure storylines, and I do all that, and um, so you're writing to a degree, but you're not really you're not really writing on the page. You, you structure what you're doing, and then it's interview based and whatever. But I absolutely had no idea how I'd go writing it. I remember Dad saying, can you write a book? I said, I don't know. I'm not sure yet. Um, but when I started, it, it flooded out and I've been told that it's it's quite readable and it's very um, – and I've had help with editing and I've had help with mentors who structure helped me structure it. But I actually really enjoyed the process of writing. I think I'll do some more. But I'm not – I'll lean away from that. I, I've definitely finished that element of it. And I, when I finished the last words, I remember thinking – that's it. I've got no more to say about that, um, which was really important and so I could leave it. Well, I can highly recommend it. Um, I read it in, in one hit and for our listeners to repeat, it's called He Was My Brother, The Story of Rob Dixon and Me. Pete, thank you for joining us. On Human Cogs, we like to finish all of our interviews with the same questions and we're going to ask that of you too. We wonder who you think is doing human well. Hmm. I feel compelled to say someone in my family, but there's so many people I could mention. This is what I don't want to. I don't want to miss anyone out. But I, I think, for example, someone like Ben Crow, who is in is in the book and 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 is wrote for me. But Ben and one of our past guests on human. Uh, really? Oh yeah. Okay. After, um, he. He's been such a a guide and a mentor to both Rob and I, and I think he's doing human well. He seems to have an amazing positive approach to life, and he's very wise, and especially with me, he seems to peg 
you know, I'm feeling or going straight away and um, will offer just a couple of words here and there that really help me. So if I could be be, be someone at the moment, I think I'd be Ben Crow. Well, yeah. we want you to be Pete, but we can say yeah. Ben's doing human no, well. No, he's doing human well. And, <laughs> and uh, it's a good, you know, good little promo to go back if you're listening and check out our episode with Ben Crow mm. from uh, a couple of seasons ago. For our listeners and and for you too, Pete. Thank you again for joining us, for sharing so candidly. And it's a raw, it's a raw story to tell, and you tell it well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.